Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I'm Ashwarya, your host for this episode, and I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want to give our newest patrons a shout out and a huge thank you for subscribing to help the podcast out. Our newest patrons are Vishaka Gupta, Meenal, Ratan Kaur, Dre Upshaw, Bhargav Vanaparthi, Victor Garcia, Prarthana Vadva and all of our other amazing patrons who supported us in this wild journey of ours. For those of you that haven't subscribed to our Patreon yet, head over there and subscribe for amazing exclusive features like merch, awesome extra episodes, early access episodes, video calls with us and more. To help the podcast out and to avail these awesome benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. And with that, welcome back to season 3 of the Desi Crime podcast. Rest assured the wait was totally worth it because this season is going to be a crazy ride. The case that we have for you today is one that destroyed the most significant family in Nepal and pushed the country into political turmoil. This is the story of a political struggle, an unaccepted love affair, a family rivalry and a mass killing that left 10 dead and four severely wounded by not an outsider but an insider from within their family this is the story of the nepalese royal family massacre Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge and thank the major sources we've used for our research into this incredibly complicated case. I'd like to thank the Nepali Times for their interviews and articles which provide invaluable first-hand accounts, the Times of India for its vividly detailed articles on the event, and lastly and perhaps most importantly, I'd like to thank Michael James Hutt, a professor of Nepali and Himalayan studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London for his research paper titled The Royal Palace Massacre: Conspiracy Theories in Nepali Street Literature. our work wouldn't be complete without any of these sources so our goal at desi crime is usually to unearth stories that aren't actually heard of but this is one of those cases that we all know about we all know there was a nepalese royal family and we all know that there was something on the lines of a massacre in fact back in high school i remember learning about this to some extent but despite it being such a big case I don't think I know enough about it. I don't know what happened. I don't know why what happened actually happened. But I can imagine that just like the workings of any prominent family riddled with scandal and turmoil, this one is complicated too. Aryan complicated is an understatement. After reading up about the Nepalese royal family, it almost feels like they're cursed. The scandal, the crime, the politics is so complex and goes back so many generations to the extent that they kind of remind me of the Kennedys, another seemingly cursed family with a long history of murder, disappearances and crime. The complexity is baffling and quite frankly incapable of being fully explained in a 45-minute episode, but I shall try like always. 
Yes, you always try and you always succeed. Anyway, I'm excited to dive into this complexity. So take us to the streets of Kathmandu. Let's indeed go to Nepal. In fact, let's go to Narayan Hiti Palace located in Kathmandu, Nepal's capital city, the cradle of its political power and the center of its commerce on June the 1st, 2001. Now, when I say palace, I mean palace. The earliest structures of the Narayan Hiti Palace have existed since the early 1800s. The palace structure has seen dynastic changes, revolutions, military coups and house arrests of royal family members. The palace represents Nepal in a strong symbolic way, but also literally since in 2001 it housed the royal family. I don't mean to make this a history lesson, but a little context here is very important to understand the importance of the royal family to the people of Nepal. The Shah dynasty in Bar in 2001 was established by Prithvi Narayan Shah in the 1730s. The Shah dynasty has seen since then waves of violence, gruesome murders and political instability time and time again through its history. In the 1950s this instability came in the form of pro-democracy movements Nepal was suddenly seeing a surge in and calls to change Nepal from a Hindu monarchy to a secular constitutional one at the very least were being made but the royal family suppressed these movements one after another they let the people vote and form a government and a constitution but then nullified the constitution and imprisoned elected leaders and suppressed dissent When a new constitution was finally adopted by the country in 1962 it placed the source of all power to govern the country in the hands of the king King Mahendra who had very strong support from both the Indian and the Chinese government Eventually in 1975 King Mahendra died and left the throne to his son King Birendra King Birendra liberalized the country to some degree such as by establishing a constitutional monarchy in the 1990s and creating a kind of pseudo election system but despite all of this in 2001 the monarchy was very much the main source of governance in Nepal and the country was far from being a true democracy I know I use this podcast as a medium to just show off all the places that i've traveled but it comes to our rescue in episodes like shri devi where i brought up i've been to dubai and well it did come in handy right so just like in this episode let me just point out that this past winter i was in kathmandu i was in nepal and you talk about this complicated history that our neighbor shares and it's almost visible in the architecture around nepal there is this influx of chinese architecture Indian architecture perhaps a Mughal architecture but it just seems like a coagulation of all these three which shows how rich a history not just recent history but like ancient history this country has right this summer i was talking to someone and this person said to me you know some countries are countries and other countries are civilizations india is a country like that iran's a country like that i think nepal when we talk about all of this history is very much a country like that But Aran what all of this means everything i've said up until now boils down to one simple sentence which is that the Nepali monarchy was somewhat dethroned after 250 years of rule and replaced by an uneasy pseudo republic in this context it's easy to see why Narayan Hiti Palace was like India's Rashtrapati Bhavan or the White House in the US 
In 2001, the palace housed 55-year-old King Birendra, his 51-year-old wife Queen Ishwara Raja Lakshmi, 29-year-old Crown Prince Dipendra, who is King Birendra and Queen Ishwara's eldest son and next in line to the throne, 22-year-old Prince Niranjan, who is Birendra and Ishwara's younger son, 25-year-old Princess Shruti, who is Birendra and Ishwara's daughter, and a host of other people such as the king's brother, his sister, their spouses and so forth. To better visualize the family tree and remember the people that were present inside the palace on this specific night, go over to our Instagram or our Twitter at Desi Crime and check that out. This is an important detail and you'll use this later in the case. So basically, on the day of Friday, June 1st, there were almost 20 people inside the palace excluding staff and royal workers. So the palace was hustling, bustling and vibrant. On this evening the royal family was in their dining area eating their last meal for the day. They were entertaining guests in the house talking about their respective days and life in general. According to an article in the Times of India, the custom of a Friday night dinner for the Shah family was begun by King Birendra soon after his 1972 coronation. There was no permanent venue and the hosts were selected by turn. The previous Friday for example the family had met at Mahendra Manzil the residence of Queen Mother Ratna Devi King Birendra's stepmother on occasion the king hosted the dinner in his own palace residence like every night a lavish meal was prepared for the members of the family that they sat and enjoyed in a room that could be traced back centuries sitting on chairs that had hosted statesmen and celebrities alike this is what a normal friday in the life of a royal family looks like But little did anyone know this day was far from normal. It was a day that would make history and push the Nepalese government and the country to the brink of turmoil. I was almost about to say I wish I had normal Fridays with <laughs> gold-laden plates and a feast and the moment you said not a normal Friday and democracy is hashed up I was like okay I, I I'm yep. enjoying my life my mediocre <laughs> upper middle class life does me just fine your friday is just fine ara <laughs> at around 4:30 pm that evening as the royal family is dining one member of the family is not present for the dinner that member is future crown prince dipendra who's next in line to the throne prince dipendra's absence was noticed him not being there was a violation of protocol and stuck out to the king who found the act very disrespectful The 29-year-old returns to the palace at around 5 p.m. that evening and his behavior is odd and disrespectful to say the least. The moment he enters the area where the family was dining, it was obvious that the prince was drunk. Not only was he very drunk on whiskey, but he was also incredibly high. He was slurring, his movements were erratic and out of control, and very quickly he ends up getting into an argument with one of the guests dining at the palace that evening. See now that sounds like my kind of Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to be in an Aryan dinner on a Friday night. <laughs> Embarrassed at the actions of their son, the queen instructs their youngest son, Prince Niranjan, and a cousin dining at the palace that night to escort Prince Dipendra back to his room. The two young boys hold Prince Dipendra's hands and walk him up the stairs all the way back to his room in the hopes that the most embarrassing part of the night was over and that the prince would hopefully fall back asleep in his room without creating much more of a scene. 
Inside his room, the prince downed half a bottle of scotch and smoked a couple of marijuana joints before making three phone calls, all directed to a single woman, Devyani Rana. Now, the love story of Devyani and Prince Dipendra is central to understanding this story, but that's the part we get into in the second half of this episode. As of now, all you need to know is that Prince Dipendra and Devyani are crazily in love. On this particular night, like all lovers, Prince Dipendra's last call of the day and last call of his life goes to Miss Rana. She picks up, the two talk, and eventually Prince Dipendra cuts the call saying he was going to sleep. After cutting the call, the prince picks up a photo frame kept on his dresser with Divyani's photo in it and smashes it on the floor, shattering the glass frame. By this time, it's about 5.30 in the evening and the royal family and their guests had moved to the billiards room of the palace where they were now playing pool, listening to music and talking. A palace aide who was working in the palace that night was right outside Prince Dipendra's room at 5.45 when he saw the prince emerge from his room in his official army uniform with a weapon, a Colt M16 A2 rifle. While what the guard saw was a little out of place to him, the prince was known to be a gun enthusiast and to see him walking with his own personal collection wasn't completely out of the ordinary. But isn't it too much gun enthusiasm for 6pm? Perhaps it is, but maybe the guard was busy. Okay. Maybe it wasn't out of the ordinary for the prince That's to weird. That's more weird. I wish the guard was busy rather than 6pm on Fridays. It's normal for the right. prince to be out of the gun. Right. The prince walked down the steps of the palace carrying his weapon and made his way to the billiards room. Inside the room, the king was on a sofa drinking his favourite cognac. The queen was on an adjoining sofa. Melodies of Nepali music was emanating from the radio which was kept switched on as the king preferred not to miss his news bulletin according to the TOI article. Since the event in the billiards room was a private affair, no guards were present inside to protect the king and queen as they usually do. The prince opened the door to the billiards room and locked the door behind him. Inside, he sees his father right in front of him and the first thing he does is opens fire on him. He empties an entire cartridge on just one corner of the room, with the bullets ricocheting in all directions, hitting multiple family members. By now, the king had been severely wounded and was bleeding from his neck. At this point, the crown prince bolted out of the room, a move nobody fully understood. Dr. Shahi, one of the guests present there that night, took off his coat to nurse the wounded king and realised the king was shot in his stomach too. Quote, don't worry, we're taking you to the hospital, end quote, Shahi reassured the king. But before that could happen, the crown prince returned, this time with a new weapon, his heckler and coke assault rifle. So help me understand something. You said that there were no guards in the room because it was a private affair. Correct. But he left the room and in that time the gunshots weren't heard by guards or... There weren't calls for guards to come in or was it so quick? It was so quick. So when the entire event is timed now in retrospect, the entire massacre lasted about five minutes. Wow. So the prince leaving and he's going to leave multiple times. Him leaving and bringing a new weapon. Let me not spoil it. You you get into it. Perfect. (laughs) 
now you're probably not going to understand or remember who the people i'm about to mention are but that's fine you don't necessarily need to but their names and stories in this massacre are necessary for you to understand the turmoil that went on within the walls of the palace that night the armed prince was now back in the room the times of india reported quote his 5.56 mm round was an ideal weapon for firing at closed quarters Prince Dhirendra the king's brother tried to disarm the prince and got shot in the chest in the process then Dipendra got wild and started shooting indiscriminately the spray cut down aunt sharda and shanti birendra's cousin jayanti and sharda's husband kumar khagra by then princess shruti the daughter of the king and the queen and the sister of the man shooting had come to her injured father and had rested his head on her lap dipendra fired at her and his father point blank until they were both riddled with bullets then he drew another arc with the gun blazing pumping more bullets into everyone who survived dhirendra the king's brother could have saved his life if he hadn't lunged forward to disarm the crown prince he paid for the indiscretion after struggling in the hospital for 3 days The bullets had smashed his rib cage tearing off his lungs. Aunt Shobha was lucky in two ways. First, her husband Mohan Shahi had not been keeping well and so had kept away from the dinner. Second, her dive towards the anteroom put her beyond the range of the gunfire. Ketaki Cheshtra, granddaughter of King Tribhuvan and Komal, wife of Gyanendra, got off with minor injuries as they too were huddled into the anteroom with prince paras in their midst a stray bullet hit komal seated at the farthest end of the assault rifle's fatal arc though there are two versions of her injury one says a bullet got her on the right thigh while the other suggests a hit in the stomach but either way she obviously saved her life by a whisker similarly fortunate was shruti's husband Gorakrana wounded in his arm. Shahi says he got off by diving through a window onto the porch. But Dipendra hadn't quite finished yet. The crown prince went back to his room again only to return in a span of no more than 1 minute with a third weapon, an MP5K submachine gun dreaded for its accuracy. Wow. End quote. But later accounts reveal that the prince didn't come back. just to kill the remaining family members he came for his one true prized victim his mother queen ashwarya by this time the queen and her youngest son prince niranjan had escaped the billiards room and the palace out into the garden that that amazes me so firstly all the experience i have with guns is when i used to play call of duty so i don't mean to belittle <laughs> this but i know what an mk submachine gun can do so it's crazy that they evaded with all this barrage of weaponry that was used in a 5 minute span but more than that how are they still alive how did they in particular manage to escape it seems like it was almost sheer luck so some reports suggest that they ducked behind the sofa that they were sitting on before the carnage began and escaped the first time the prince left the room to bring a new weapon The TOI article says, quote, "As the rampaging crown prince appeared in the garden, the queen forgot about her personal safety and confronted him. 
but Dipendra was beyond reasoning. Before he could squeeze the trigger, Niranjan lunged in front of Ishwarya to shield her. Wow. A burst of MP5 shells and both mother and son lay dead. Stepping back, the crown prince walked across to the garden in full view of some of the survivors who had come out of the anteroom. Then, before anyone could make a move, he reversed the shotgun in his own direction and shot himself mm. in the chest twice with a shotgun. Yep. The powerful bullets exited through his back, a fact subsequently used by conspiracy theorists to claim there was a second assassin who had executed a no comeback plan. But again, we'll get to those theories in the second half of this episode. I can only imagine how many theories there are, Ishwara. Im- I can't imagine shooting yourself with a shotgun. In the the recoil on a shotgun. Yeah. How how do you even with a shotgun? And in your chest. It's and, weird. And just to put it in context from what little I know about mass shootings and of course my knowledge comes from assault rifles being used in America mercilessly. But a long shooting lasts maybe for a minute. Yep. I mean a minute is really really long for a, you know, active shooter. 5 minutes? Yep. Just the fact that there are survivors is absolutely stunning to me. I know how any of the people that survived survived is unbelievable to everybody but also unbelievable to them. They've come out and said mm-hmm. that openly. They didn't think they would survive that night. As of the night of June 1st, 2001, a massacre decimated an entire line of the shah family which has ruled for 233 years by the end 10 members of the royal family were killed in a single night and four were critically injured 22 year old prince niranjan was the youngest of those who died and he died trying to save his mother by the morning the country of nepal and the world woke up to a dark day in history news of the gory details of the massacre including images of the crime scene spread fast even back in 2001 where social media and smartphones didn't exist that night all royal family members died on the compounds of the royal palace except one the one that survived was the crown prince he was taken to the hospital where he remained in a critical condition for 2 days he was alive after shooting himself with a shotgun yep in the chest yes he was not only was he alive and in a coma but for those 2 days he was effectively the king of nepal this sounds so made up ishwarya it seems like it's right out of a movie i know from the very moment that he shot his father and took his life away in the billiards room of the palace He had become the king of the country. But after 2 days in the hospital, he succumbed to his injuries and died. After him, his uncle King Yanendra, also there that night, took over the throne for the second time in his lifetime. According to a research paper written by Michael Hutt, quote, the palace retreated behind its traditional veil of secrecy in the immediate aftermath of the massacre and even attempted to spread disinformation at first. Radio Nepal and Nepal Television effectively closed down for some 14 hours and only two of Nepal's daily newspapers reported the massacre the next morning. 
The fact that all of Nepal's other papers remained silent on the matter was not because they had not received any information. Rather, according to the media analyst Rama Parujuli, quote, this was due to the complexity of the subject, which meant that the dangers involved in reporting it had not been evaluated, end quote. However, the foreign and internet media began to run the story within a few hours of the event, unanimously identifying Dipendra's unfulfilled wish to marry Divyani Rana as the main causal factor, end quote. But this is a theory we get into later. Please get into them sooner, Ashwarya. I feel like an anti-vax conspiracy <laughs> theorist because this doesn't make sense to me. It makes more sense that there was a hired shooter. It makes more sense that... Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Unfortunately, for the curious cat in you, Aryan, and the one in all of our listeners... <laughs> no, don't do this. We'll get there. But we'll get there in the next episode, the second part of the Royal Family Massacre. This case isn't as simple as it seems at first. And we need you to tune in next week to learn exactly why. Till then, stay healthy, stay patient, stay crazy and stay desi.